Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about how hurricanes get their names, and we'll talk about using contractions in your writing. 2020 has been a challenging year, to say the least. We don't know what the second half will bring. The way things are going, it could be Godzilla. It could be aliens. Maybe we'll be lucky and it'll just be hurricanes. In fact, we're smack in the middle of hurricane season in the United States. It runs from July to September in the Northern Hemisphere and January to March in the Southern Hemisphere. With that in mind, we started thinking about how hurricanes and other storms get their names. First of all, hurricanes themselves are called different things in different parts of the world. When they form in the North Atlantic and Eastern North Pacific, they're called hurricanes. If they form in the Western North Pacific near China, Japan, and the Philippines, they're called typhoons. And if they form in the Western South Pacific or Indian Ocean, they're called tropical cyclones. Regardless of the name, they're all the same, spinning storms that start over tropical waters. They have high winds of 74 miles per hour or more, heavy rain, and storm surges. These surges can raise ocean waters up to 20 feet above normal. Needless to say, hurricanes present a deadly threat to people in coastal communities. Humans have undoubtedly suffered because of hurricanes since our earliest days. And back then, we simply called them by the name of wherever they hit. Thus, we have the Hakata Bay Typhoon of 1281, the Calcutta Cyclone of 1737, and the Galveston Hurricane of 1900. The Calcutta Cyclone was one of the deadliest in history. It threw a 40-foot storm surge into the Ganges River Delta, destroying 20,000 ships and killing more than 300,000 people. The Galveston Hurricane is the worst in U.S. history. It sent water surging 15 feet high, swallowing Galveston Island and the Texas coast and killing some 8,000 people. The Hakata Bay Typhoon of 1291 is noteworthy because of its place in history. It struck the coast of Japan right when the great Mongol emperor Kublai Khan was attacking the country. The huge typhoon struck the bay where his forces were moored. They tried to retreat to the sea, but they didn't make it. 4,000 ships and 140,000 soldiers were lost. Just seven years earlier, another typhoon had struck during a previous Mongol invasion, and that one drowned 13,000 men. After these events, the Japanese word kamikaze, meaning divine wind, was coined. And why not? Two storms had just destroyed two invading forces. It must have seemed logical that the gods were deliberately protecting Japan from its enemies. The word kamikaze, by the way, is a combination of kami, the word for a nature spirit in the Japanese Shinto religion, and kazi, meaning wind. In World War II, the ideograph for this word was used by special attack units of the Japanese Navy. Japanese pilots flew planes full of explosives directly into enemy targets. To this day, a kamikaze mission means a suicide mission, and a kamikaze can be anyone who acts in a self-destructive way, especially if they're doing it for a cause. But back to hurricanes. During World War II, storms were given names that matched radio code names for letters of the alphabet, Abel 51 or Baker 32, for example. 
They were also referred to by coordinates of their latitude and longitude. In 1953, the U.S. National Hurricane Center began giving storms human names. The idea was to promote safety by helping people easily recognize storm names in warning messages. A name like Anna or Marco is easier to remember than 29.5 North, 79.6 West, for example. Originally, all the names picked out for storms were female. But in 1979, men's names were added, and they now alternate with women's names. Eventually, an international committee of the World Meteorological Organization took over naming storms. The WMO set up nine sets of names for nine world regions, from the North Atlantic to the Southwest Indian Ocean. Each region has its own set of male and female names. Some lists are alphabetical, but some aren't. Some have contributions from countries in the region. In the Northern Indian Ocean region, for example, names come from Bangladesh, India, the Maldives, Myanmar, Oman, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Thailand. The North Atlantic region, which includes the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico, has six separate lists of names. Those lists are recycled every six years, so this year's list in 2020 will be used again in 2026. The first storm of the year gets the first name at the top of the list. This year, we started with Arthur, Bertha, and Cristobal, and we'll end with Vicky and Wilfred if we get that many storms. The names used in other regions reflect names that are common in that area. For example, names on the Eastern North Pacific list include Jimena, Ileana, and Tico. The Central North Pacific list has Akani, Lala, and Huko. And the Western North Pacific list has Samba, Fengshan, and Noru. By the way, odd weather systems don't get names like these until they reach tropical storm strength. Meteorologists do track them before that, but they simply give them a number. The lists of storm names are regularly revisited, and the names of deadly storms are often retired. The name Mitch, for example, was removed from the list in 1999 after Hurricane Mitch poured rain, mudslides, and floods across Central America, taking some 10,000 lives. Mitch was a Category 5 hurricane, which brings us to the final fact of the day about hurricane naming. They're rated on the Saffir-Simpson wind scale— which assigns storms a rating of 1 through 5 based on their sustained wind speed. All hurricanes are dangerous, but Category 3 and higher are considered major storms that cause catastrophic damage. Category 1 winds start at 74 miles per hour, and Category 5 winds hit 157 miles per hour or higher. And here's a final bit of history— We don't know what category the storm was that hit a fleet of ships sailing from England to Virginia way back in 1609. But we do know that one of the ships, the Sea Venture, was blown off course and ran aground on an uninhabited island, the place we now call Bermuda. The settlers built two new ships, Patience and Deliverance, and many sailed on to Virginia, though others chose to stay behind. One of those who returned, William Strachey, published an eyewitness account of what happened, titled A True Reportery of the Wreck and Redemption of Sir Thomas Gates Knight. His story is believed to have influenced a young author named William Shakespeare to write a play called The Tempest. 
To this day, The Tempest remains one of Shakespeare's most popular and most frequently produced plays. So I guess that's one teeny tiny benefit of the deadly storms we call hurricanes. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. This segment was written by Ben Yagoda, so when I say I, that's actually him. Some years ago, I wrote a book called The Sound on the Page, Style and Voice in Writing. In it, I tried to get at some of the elements, other than content, that make strong writers' prose distinctive and immediately identifiable, their stylistic fingerprint. To illustrate the general concept, I use the example of contractions. Consider two sentences. I do not like green eggs and ham. And I don't like green eggs and ham. The meaning obviously is identical, but the sound, the voice, is quite different. Most of us aren't a Hemingway or a Samuel Beckett or a Dr. Seuss, and we shoot for a more or less transparent style, or one that, as they say of good baseball umpires, is not noticed, and that extends to the use of contractions. Of course, transparency means different things for different sorts of writing— In the depiction of speech, such as dialogue and fiction, and scripts or quotations in journalism, readers expect a contraction to be used pretty much every time it's an option, because that's the way people talk. When I taught journalism, students would occasionally turn in an article with a line like, I did not expect that to happen, Smith said. And I would comment either Smith really said didn't, or he speaks in an oddly stilted manner, in which case you should slip in a line such as, Smith speaks like a character in a Damon Runyon story. Song lyrics also need to be conversational. Consider the titles of classic American popular songs like, I Won't Dance, They Can't Take That Away From Me, and I Didn't Know What Time It Was. Damon Runyon, who I mentioned a few sentences back, was an early 20th century New York writer whose stories were the basis of the classic musical Guys and Dolls. The hallmarks of his non-transparent style was that the gangsters and other Broadway denizens who narrated and peopled his stories, A, embraced the present tense, and B, avoided contractions, as if they were in a Dr. Seuss book. The first sentence of the collection Damon Runyon Omnibus contains the line, Ordinarily, I do not care for any part of lawyers. The phrase do not appears more than 30 times in just the first two stories. The word don't doesn't occur at all in the collection, which consists of three complete books. Charles Portis's 1968 novel True Grit is narrated by an old woman, Maddie Ross, remembering in the 1920s her adventures many years earlier. Both Maddie and the people she quotes usually avoid contractions. For example, She must have seen the dismay on my face, for she added, It will be all right. Grandma Turner will not mind. She is used to doubling up. She will not even know you are there, sweet. And as an aside, that was actually hard for me to say without converting those into contractions. The characters in the Coen Brothers' 2010 movie version of the novel generally don't use contractions either. Ethan Coen said in an interview, quote, We've been told that the language and all the formality is faithful to how people talked in the period, unquote. But as Mark Liberman demonstrated on the language log, the Coens were told wrong. 
Liberman searched Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer, 1876, and found, quote, 58 instances of won't and just one of will not in the author's preface. There are 223 instances of don't against just one instance of do not, unquote. Contractions are also the default in emails and other informal conversational writing. In prose that's directed at a general audience, the expectation is that they'll be used judiciously. In his book, On Writing Well, William Zinser counseled, quote, Trust your ear and your instincts. Your style will be warmer and truer to your personality if you use contractions like I'll and won't and can't when they fit comfortably into what you're writing, unquote. Even following that advice, there's a lot of room for leeway. For two books I have on my Kindle, Unbroken, by the outstanding popular historian and journalist Laura Hildenbrand, and These Truths by Jill Lepore, a Harvard historian writing for a general audience, I calculated the percentage of times each writer used and didn't use the common contractions wasn't and didn't. Not surprisingly, considering the writer's respective background and audience, Hildenbrand went with the contraction 87% of the time, Lepore less than 40 Contractions are frequently, usually, or almost always absent in four types of prose. The first is purely scholarly writing. For example, a post on the American Psychological Association's style blog instructs writers to avoid contractions. Exceptions are direct quotations or, quote, when making an off-the-cuff or informal remark within an otherwise formal paper, unquote. You'll generally also not find contractions in formal business writing, especially as Erin Wright points out on her blog in, quote, instructions that can impact safety and security. Do not heat this metal container in a microwave instead of don't heat this. Passengers cannot leave their seats until the ride comes to a complete stop instead of passengers can't leave, unquote. In legal writing, a number of judges use contractions in rulings, but the general sense is that they should be avoided in briefs. On the Lawyerist blog, Matthew Salzvedel quotes the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia as calling contractions marketplace vulgarisms and warning lawyers that judges might view them as, quote, an affront to the dignity of the court. And those judges who don't take offense will not understand your brief or vote for your case one whit more readily, unquote. Salzweil notes, quote, perhaps only Justice Scalia can get away with using a contraction, don't, when instructing lawyers not to use contractions such as don't, unquote. The fourth contraction-free zone might be surprising. It's newspaper journalism, especially as practiced in the New York Times. The Times Style Guide instructs, quote, in straightforward news copy, spell out expressions like is not, has not, have not, do not, are not, will not, etc., unquote. And sure enough, the lead story on the paper's website, as I write, sidesteps contractions 12 times, including three times in these two sentences. Quote, the White House did not invite to the briefing Dr. Anthony S. Fauci, the government's top infectious disease expert, who has come under fire from the president and his team. Dr. Deborah L. Burks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, was not in the room either, unquote. The only contractions that appear in that story are in quotations. To end, I see that in this podcast segment post, I've chosen contractions eight times and avoided them seven. How's that for transparency? 
And this is me, Mignon. I'll add that I'm sure I contracted some of Ben's non-contractions because I do it unconsciously as I'm reading scripts. So that's another level of transparency. Ben Yagoda is the author of How to Not Write Bad, About Town, The New Yorker and the World It Made, and many other books. You can find out more about him at benyagoda.com and on Twitter where he is byagoda. Finally, I have a familect story from Melissa. Hi, Mignon. This is Alyssa in Spokane, Washington. I have a family use word for you that no one else uses. Uh, it actually created a noun and a verb. It's the remote control for the TV. My dad called it the beepus, beepus, forever. And, uh, and then that went into beepusing, the verb. You know, when you're when you're flipping through channels, you are beepusing. So it's the beepus or beepusing. And, you know, he's passed away, and we all still use the word. All of my siblings and my mom, we still call it beepusing. And uh, there you are. Thanks. Thanks, Melissa. I thought this one was interesting because it shows how normal it is for nouns to become verbs. First, we had the microwave, and then we talked about microwaving. Melissa's dad had the beepus, and then they had beepusing. So a lot of people complain about nouns getting verbified, turned into verbs. But Melissa's family experience is just one of many, many examples of how common it is, how it's a completely normal way to treat words in English. If you want to call and leave a voicemail with the story of a word your family and only your family uses, part of your familect, the number is 833214-GIRL. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all the Grammar Girl articles at the home of my network, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sems, and that's all. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life, which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi.